Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Well, when you think of elite athletes, you probably think of someone who is in peak physical condition, someone who treats his body like a temple and what he eats and how he sleeps and what he does day to day. And you can run all day long and who, who can jump over small buildings with a uh, single bound and who can lift just unimaginable amounts of weight and otherwise just kind of shows himself to be some kind of superhuman freak. But we all know that none of us are born that way. We're not born as elite athletes. At best, we come into the world very tiny and very uncoordinated and, and barely moving and very, very fat, though generally quite cute, as little babies. So what explains the transformation from something like this, there's Theo, to something like this? And I believe that's Bryce Harper in game five of the NLCS last year hitting a home run. What, what explains that transformation? Well, of course, we know that not everybody, not every baby grows up to be an elite athlete and not even every elite athlete looks very athletic. For example, John Cruck. Uh, if you're a Phillies fan, John Cruck is revered in our home. We love John. There's nothing better than watching a Phillies game with John Cruck as the commentator. He's hilarious. But by and large, we know that elite athletes look the part. They look elite. They're in great shape because they've worked very hard for a long time. They've sacrificed greatly, choosing to, to dedicate their lives single-mindedly in the pursuit of their goal. And, and if we were to put that pursuit into just one word, we should say that they're pursuing glory. Elite athletes become elite by pursuing what they see as glorious. Well, in order to achieve at the highest levels, those elite athletes have been captivated, their hearts have been captured by a vision of something, that they want to beat everyone that they play against. They want to ascend to the highest levels of their sport. And so the baseball player wants to make it to the major leagues. And not only do they want to make it to the major leagues, they want to win the World Series. He wants the glory of being a major leaguer. He wants the glory of being a world champion, the glory of knowing that he is better than everyone else. And in this way, elite athletes show us something about human nature. What they're demonstrating is something that's true about all of us, all the time and without fail. We all seek glory. And, and that aspect of human nature, that drive to find glory is by God's design. We seek glory because God has made us to seek glory. The Bible talks about the control center of our hearts, uh, of, of our humanity, most often with that term, heart. And so the heart is what controls us, and that includes our thoughts and our affections and our wills. And the truth is that we are all all the time, without exception, seeking glory from our hearts. We're actually seeking what our hearts have identified as the most glorious. We're, we're living to what, according to what we think is glorious, and, and we're giving ourselves to pursuing that, and, and we can't help it. It's who we are. And so I, I just talked a little bit about how that works in sports, but it, it goes beyond sports to everything that we do. So you might seek the glory of being a good student, a great student, right? You're looking to get straight A's. You're, you're looking to get this mathematically impossible GPA of, of above four, 
That, that when I was a kid, you could never get greater than four, 4.0, that's the best. Now it's like 4.8 or something. I don't, I don't know how that works. But, or, so you can seek that kind of glory. Or you can seek the glory of being popular. Right? And so you're going to post photos on social media and then you're going to see, well, who, who likes it? Who comments on it? Do I matter? Do people notice me? Or you can seek the glory of being a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or building a family with someone you love and making a difference in the world. There, there's a million different ways to seek glory and we all do it all the time. So seeking glory isn't necessarily good or bad in and of itself. It depends on what kind of glory you're seeking and how you're pursuing it. You see, there's, there's two ways to seek glory in this world. You can either seek it in pursuit of ultimate glory. So you're seeking the greatest glory at the, the greatest source. Or you can seek it in place of ultimate glory. Where you put yourself and your desires at the center of where you find glory. And you don't concern yourself with who or what most deserves glory. So last night, Mr. Betcher uh, taught us a number of very good and very important things. But one of the most important things that he said was God is the greatest being there is. Did you catch that when he said that? God is the greatest being there is. And throughout history, people have often spoken of and in a way defined God as the being than which none greater can be imagined. He is the greatest possible being. And so here's an illustration of that. You know things, right? You, you've been students, you've, you've studied, you've read, you've learned, and, and so you hopefully know things. Well, what does God know? He knows all things perfectly. He is omniscient. And you can do things, right? You have abilities and skills. You can walk or you can eat or you can sit in your chair without falling out of it. Well, well, what can God do? God can do all things perfectly. He is omnicompetent. What are the limits of his power? He has all power. He is omnipotent. You're here, right? You, you exist, you're present, you occupy space. Where is God? And what are the limits of his presence? Well, God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. He cannot be contained. He fills all things. And there's a great, it's one of my favorite theological terms. God is immense, which doesn't mean that God is really, really fat, right? What it means is that he can't be constrained or limited to any geographical space. Instead, he is everywhere present all the time. Or to go a different direction, how about love? You love people, right? In part and not always perfectly, but, but you love things and people. God is love. He's the fullness of love. He loves all persons and all things with perfect love. He loves in a perfect way, with a perfect amount, in perfect judgment, and with perfect intentions. God is not sentimental. His love is just and wise and true and perfect. And that, that is very, very good news for us. I think sometimes when we talk about the love of God, we think of it as something very sentimental. As though God looks at you and goes, aw, 
Isn't he nice? Isn't she cute? Right? God's love is not sentimental. It's wise. It's just. It's true. And so when God looks at you, he knows you perfectly. He he sees you as the creature that he created in his image to know and love and enjoy him. He, He knows the gifts and the talents he gave you. More than that, he knows the sins that you've committed and he knows them as the person that you have most sinned against. So we're, we're a little bit aware of our sin, right? We know our sin a little bit. God knows our sins perfectly and his love towards us is not sentimental. If, if, we, if we saw our sins the way God does, I think we would all throw up and fall apart That's basically what Isaiah did last night, right? Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. God sees and knows your sins way more than you do. And yet the Bible says, God loves you. And so his love for you is not a sentimental love, but just aw. It is a just and perfect and fully informed love. God loves us in spite of what we've done instead of because of what we've done. And so so we get the picture, don't we? At least in part. God is the greatest possible being. He's the greatest being imaginable. There is none greater than God, which means that God is the most glorious being there is. And that means if you are going to pursue glory, which you are, you are right now pursuing glory, but if you're really going to pursue glory, you must pursue God. If you want to taste glory in its purest and most enjoyable form, its most enjoyable essence, you must know God. God is the most ultimately glorious being. And we were created in his image to enjoy him and his glory. The primary way that we do that now in this age is in how we respond to Jesus Christ. So I put it this way in our theme for this morning. You were made to glorify God, so live for Christ. You were made to glorify God, so live for Christ. So to put that within the scheme that we just saw a few minutes ago, we can either seek God's glory in pursuit of God, because he is ultimate glory, or we can seek glory in place of God, where we replace him with something or someone else. And so we're going to seek glory. That's just inescapable. How are we going to do it? And we're going to look to answer that question with three points this morning. And the first is that we, you, were made for glory. We just saw briefly how seeking glory is part of being human. You could say it's just, it's hardwired into us by God. And and, and another word for that is worship, right? And so I want us to consider an example of how that played out in the life of one of the primary characters in the New Testament, and that's the Apostle Paul. Paul was pursuing glory as a Jew. He was a, a boy who was born into a Jewish family in a Jewish society. He grew up as a Jew. And he was pursuing glory as a Jew. And he talks about that in Philippians 3. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. 
If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So just think about that. Paul was taught the law from as, as long as he could remember. He was taught the law of God and he dedicated his life to it. And, and at this point, he looks at his life and he says, here's the law, here's the standard of God, here am I. What's my assessment of myself before God? Perfect. Blameless. I've done it all, I've fulfilled it all. That's how Paul thought of himself. I am the perfect Jew. He had everything going his way. He's excelling, right? He studied under the best teachers. He's, he was on track to be a preeminent leader within Judaism. He was an eager student. He was zealous. He was wholehearted. He was committed. He persecuted the people that he thought were dangerous to the Jews. But then look at the last verse of that passage. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Do you understand what those words represent? Paul was, in a sense, renouncing everything that he had and everything that he was, everything he'd worked for his entire life, his very identity as a Jew, his every career goal, the, the glory he had pursued with such determination. It was all loss, he said, for the sake of Christ. In Jesus, he found the glory that he was seeking in its purest and most ultimate form. Jesus was the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament promises and prophecies that he had so diligently studied. And when he saw that, when, when the risen Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, his entire life was transformed. He looked at all that he had done. He said, it's garbage, it's loss for this, for Christ. So much so that at the very end of his life, in, in the final letter that we have from Paul, uh, it's in the letter of 2 Timothy as he's writing to this man, this younger man that he's apprenticed to be a pastor. He says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. So he's in prison writing this. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So Paul went from celebrated by the Jews as this up-and-coming leader, probably this kind of once-in-a-generation leader, this, this hero of the faith, to persecuted and attacked everywhere he went. He was beaten and imprisoned. At the end of his life, he's so captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ that he doesn't even care that he's in chains in prison because the word of the gospel is going forth and others are obtaining the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, right? What's greater than eternal glory? nothing. Infinite glory forever. There's nothing greater. And, and do you see how else he appeals to glory in this passage? Look at the contrast. He says, yeah, we've died with him so we can live with him. 
And yet we endure the, the suffering and the hardship so we can reign with him. And not only that, even though we so often fail and fall short and we're, we're faithless, he's so good and he's so glorious that he's always faithful because he cannot fail. He cannot deny himself. And so you were made for glory. You were made to, to recognize and rejoice in what is ultimately glorious. And, and all the lesser glories that we experience in this life are pointers to that ultimate glory. So how does that play out? Well, that's our second point, which is Christ is the fullness of glory. And so when we talk about the glory of God, that can be one of those topics that, that just seems so big and lofty, it can be hard for us to wrap our, our heads around it. And so I have a very simple explanation of the glory of God that doesn't capture every dynamic and nuance, but I think it gives us a good place to start in understanding it. The glory of God is the sum, or we could say the weight, of his perfections. The glory of God is the sum. It's the weightiness of his perfections. And I I put that word weight in parentheses because that idea is often associated with glory. When when you add up the perfections of God, the the sum of his perfections, the, the totality of who he is, what you get is something incredibly weighty. And one small illustration of that in the Bible is seen in God's messengers. When God sends angels to his people, right? He sends an angel with a message. What two words are the first thing that they almost always have to say? Have you noticed this? An angel shows up in the Bible. What are the first two words they say? Fear not. Why is that? Because angels are terrifying right? They're not these cute little, you know, precious moments, fuzzy, rosy-cheeked. They're terrifying. If the first thing you have to say to someone is, hey, don't be afraid. It's all right. That that tells you something about that person. Angels are weighty. They represent Almighty God. They are sent from His very presence. They, They stand around His throne. They're sent from his throne with messages from the king. And they're just created beings themselves that God's using as messengers. What do you think it's like to stand in the very and glorious presence of Almighty God himself? Mr. Betcher showed us last night how Isaiah responded when he got just a taste of that, right? Just a taste of the thrice holy God. He was undone. He was more aware of his sin than ever before in his life in in the presence of this weighty perfection. Now, we've said that we're created for glory. We're created to enjoy God's glory forever. But if we go into his presence and we're undone and we melt, what's the problem? What's the disconnect there? Why are we undone and overwhelmed in the presence of God? Well, the problem, of course, is sin. And do you know what sin is in its purest essence? Sin isn't just doing wrong. It's not just disobedience. What makes sin, sin is this. It is the failure to glorify God. Sin at its very essence is the failure to glorify God. It is most fundamentally that. And we're actually going to see that more in a few minutes under our final point. But, but sin is what keeps us 
from recognizing and pursuing God, from, from recognizing and pursuing ultimate glory, from, from loving and rejoicing in God himself. Sin blinds us, it deceives us, it sets our hearts on other glories, really any other glory, right? The devil would be thrilled for you to be captured with any other glory. It could be something that the world considers good, like being an elite athlete, or it could be something that the world would despise, like being, you know, a drug addict or something. Like, the, the devil doesn't care. Whatever keeps you from the glory of God, thrilled with it. Anything that will capture you, will capture your heart. You know, in many ways, we could say what you glory in is what you're willing to sacrifice for, right? You're willing to give up other things in, or, in order to obtain this. The, the elite athlete gives up rest, they give up free time, they give up the ability to eat whatever they want, the ability to hang out with friends, right? They give those things up so that they can obtain the glory of being an elite athlete. Most of us will never do that, but we'll give up other things in order to grasp what we see as glorious. Sin affects our hearts so we don't rightly evaluate what's truly glorious. It makes other things seem far more compelling. Well, yeah, I know God says this, but actually, this seems better. God says not to do this, or God says to do that. Yeah, but, but this seems like a lot more fun. This seems a lot more satisfying. This seems, if I could just get this, if I could just get this relationship, if I could just get this thing, I would be happy. Right? That's what sin does. It distorts our ability to rightly interpret the world in glory. And so sin sets our hearts on other glories, on lesser glories, and, it, it, and those become what we pursue. And because Adam and Eve rejected God and, and they plunged all of us into sin, well, we're all born into this fallen world. We're all born with sinful hearts that would keep us from knowing and loving and enjoying God and his glory. So how did the Father remedy that? How did he attack the problem of his creatures turning to inferior glories and living for themselves. Well, he did it most fundamentally by revealing himself in all his glory. So look at this. John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John, that would be the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So Jesus came to reveal the glory of Almighty God. We know that God is holy. He can't abide sin. And, and when Moses has this incredible encounter with God and he cries out, show me your glory, right? In, in Exodus 33, the Lord answers, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. To see God is to die because of sin. The holy God in the presence of sinful man produces terror and damnation. But in Jesus Christ, the holy God has taken to himself a human nature and has become embodied, incarnated in order to walk among us, in order to reveal his glory to us. 
That's the logic of the argument here in John. Why did Jesus come? To reveal his glory and especially to reveal the glory of his grace and truth. No one has ever seen God but the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh in order to make known the Father to sinners like us, changing our hearts so that we can see his glory and become his people. We don't have time to go into all the ways that Jesus Christ is is truly God and truly man or all the ways that the New Testament talks about him as the fullness of the Godhead, the fullness of the glory of God, but we do have time for this. We do have time to see what Jesus did that enables us to see and love and enjoy God in his glory. So how do sinful men and women come to see and love God, to to rejoice in the glory of God? And the core of that answer is shown, among other places, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the core of the good news that rescues us from living for inferior glories so we can finally see and enjoy and rejoice in the ultimate glory of God himself. The Father sent the Son to reveal his glory. And he did so The way the Son revealed the glory of God in part was by taking on the sins of his people. Jesus became sin. He might be sin. Who knew no sin? So it wasn't his sin. He took on the sins of his people. He went to the cross and he was uh, fully punished. He bore the full wrath of God, the, the furious wrath of Almighty God is how Revelation 19 talks about it. Was poured out on the Son of God, hanging on the cross, not for his sin, but for the sins of his people. Thus revealing the glory of God, the grace and truth that's revealed to us in Jesus Christ. But that's not all. In addition to that, Jesus lived a life of perfect and dedicated obedience. He he was fully committed to the glory of the Father so that as we trust in Jesus, his record His accomplishments of perfect obedience are credited to us. And so that's the exchange, right? Jesus takes our record, what we've done, that's given to him, and he gets what's due, which is the wrath of God fully poured out on him on the cross. Jesus takes his record and gives it to us so that we receive not what we're due, but what he's due. We don't receive the fury, the wrath that we've deserved for for minimizing, for daring to minimize and dismiss the ultimate glory of Almighty God. We don't receive that. Jesus received that. So that we receive the reward, that perfect obedience that is fully dedicated to the ultimate glory of the Father. We receive the reward that He deserves. He gives that to us. That's the the crux, that's the heart of the glory of the gospel. That exchange, that sinners become righteous in Christ. That, that all the sins that you've ever committed, all the sins you will ever commit, can be fully pardoned. That the wrath of God from your, for your sin can be removed from you. Right? Like the scapegoat where it's, it's taken out in the wilderness, never to be seen again. And, and the wrath is poured out on another, on a substitute. So that you don't have to face it. Even though you deserve it. You're the one who earned it. You did it. 
right? If, if we're honest and we think about Jesus, when you say Jesus died for my sins, when I, I remember being a kid growing up in church, Jesus died for my sins. Okay. I'm not sure what that means. What does that mean? Does that mean anything to you? Jesus died for your sin. Is that like an abstract concept? Or can you think of specific things that you've done? Can you think of specific attitudes and dispositions in your heart where you've sinned against God? Where you deserve the wrath of God? Where there's no explanation for God loving you and being good to you? And yet he does. God doesn't love us unconditionally. He loves us contra-conditionally. He loves us in spite of what we've done. And he made full provision so that everything you've done in rebellion against him, everything, without exception, can be pardoned as you trust in Christ. That Jesus hung on the cross for you. That your sins, the wrath of your sins, was poured out on Christ for you. And Jesus lived a perfect life for you. So the record of his obedience and the reward that he so richly deserves is given to you. So that you go from this orphan who's rebelled against God to a beloved child who's been adopted and welcomed into his family forever. Never to leave. Never to be cast out. Never to doubt. Am I safe? Am I safe? Could it possibly be true that God loves me? Could it possibly be true that God looks at who I am and what I've done and says, fully pardoned? And he looks at who Jesus is and what he's done and he says, that's yours. That's who you are. That is the glory of God revealed in the Son of God as the Lamb of God sent into the world to save, not, ah but to save his enemies, to save those who don't deserve it. If you've trusted in Jesus, you have become the righteousness of God. To understand Jesus as our Redeemer is to taste the glory of God. It's, it's a taste of heaven. The way the Bible talks about heaven as it's already broken into this world. And all those who've trusted in Christ have tasted it. We're walking in it now. So we love Jesus. We love the glory of God because he has loved us despite our infamy. So don't, don't look to lesser glories that cannot satisfy you. They will never satisfy you. Find glory in its fullness in Jesus Christ. That brings us to the last point, which is that only fools reject him. So this brings us to our final passage, which is Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. An exchange, we just talked about one exchange, this is a different exchange. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Since all people seek glory, there's really only two options available to us. So we either seek ultimate glory at its ultimate source, which is God himself, or we seek lesser glory anywhere else. And since we are creatures 
living in his creation, even if we were to deny that, that means that we're, the only options for us to seek glory in are in created things, created beings. And so here in Romans 1, Paul's saying those options are mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things, or in other words, other creatures, which does include ourselves, right? The, the biggest idol we tend to live for is ourselves. I love me and have a wonderful plan for my life, right? That, that's the nature of idolatry. Well, in ancient times, that often played out in obvious idolatry, right? And so they had these temples erected to other gods, and they had images that they created out of these gods out of metal and stone and wood, and then they made sacrifices, and they worshiped those gods to try and appease them and try and get a good harvest or to be able to have a baby or whatever. There were various things that they were pursuing, and of course, we think, no, no, you know, that's foolish. They're, they're superstitious. They're almost cave people. We're much more sophisticated than that today. We would never do anything so crude as worshiping an image of a false god. We would never erect a giant image that the crowds would gather to cheer and to declare their love and allegiance. Except we do. This is Lincoln Financial Field, right, where the Eagles play. And you can see, do you see the two images of players there on the stadium? They're they're giant images of the giant men who, who grace that field, those heroes. They're extraordinary men who perform extraordinary feats and tens of thousands of people decorate themselves in the colors, the outfits, the uniforms of their heroes, and they scream their approval, or in Philly especially, their disapproval, right? And they sing, fly, eagles, fly, and they, they high-five one another when these men do great things, and, and, and millions more people watch it online. Modern professional sports are one of the primary areas we, we can find humans seeking glory, and it's not just the athletes on the field who are seeking glory. You see it in the fans in the stadium, and and you see it with those watching on TV and online, and everyone wants a taste of the glory that sports represent. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, that glory is idolatrous. People will go to a stadium or or they'll sit in their living room and they will scream wholeheartedly with, with all that they have right, for their team and against the other team, and, and, and at the same time, they will have no love and affection for God, their creator, who is the most ultimately glorious being there is. People whose mood rises and falls with how well or how poorly their team performs instead of finding their, their happiness and their satisfaction in the Lord. Sin is any failure to give God glory. Sports can serve us. I love sports. And sports can serve us when they point us to the God who who made our bodies and gave us abilities that allow us to perform marvelous feats. They they can serve us by providing examples of excellence. While sports can be a fine servant, they are a horrible master. If we're living for anything less than the glory of God, then the glories that we find in other things, like sports, but it could be anything else, those glories will destroy us. If our hearts are not captured by the glory of God, we will fall into greater and greater sins as we seek ultimate glory in things that cannot ultimately satisfy. In his commentary on on this passage, Thomas Schreiner puts it this way. He says, particular sins all stem from a rejection of God as God, a failure to give him honor and glory. As we fail to give God glory, All of these other sins are downstream from that. That's the big one, right? What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods 
before me. All other sins are downstream. One day, we will all die. And when we awake, as it were, on the other side of death, in the eternal state, our destiny is set. Derek Thomas puts it this way in the book that you were given already. Where we find ourselves after death is where we will be forever. You thought about that? Where you find yourself after death is where you will be forever. There's, there's no opportunity at that point to change your location, to change your destiny. And that means if we're not living for the glory of God now, we will not taste it then. In his great little book, The Glory of Christ, John Owen put it very memorably. He said, no man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight in heaven who does not in some measure behold it by faith in this world. It's actually the kind of the payoff of one of the great arguments that Owen makes throughout that book. And he says, look, there's, there's two ways for us to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. One is by faith in this world because we can't see him. But the other and the better is by sight in the world to come. So, so we don't get to see Jesus by sight in this age. He's not here walking among us like he was with the disciples 2,000 years ago. Our, our beholding of the glory of Christ has to come by faith. And what that means especially is by trusting him. We trust that he is real and he is good. That is the essence of faith. According to Hebrew, Hebrews 11.6 says faith must believe that God is and that he rewards those who seek him or he exists and he's good. That's what faith is. And so we behold the glory of Christ by taking him at his word. We behold his glory by turning to him as the Savior who can rescue and redeem us, the only Savior. We are sinners. We're great sinners. We, we've all exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the infinitely lesser glory of created things. And yet God, in his perfect love and mercy, has revealed his glory to us in his incarnate Son, so we can have our sins forgiven and we can be counted righteous in him. There are also other ways for us to see the glory of God, especially in what he's created, right? And you have these bodies that have these abilities and you can look out and see the glory of creation. You can look up and see the wonders of the heavens. All of those things point to the glory and the goodness and the power of God. But the core of our engagement with the glory of God in this age is in how we understand and respond to the truth of Jesus Christ as the Savior, the, the Lamb of God, come to reveal the truly staggering depth of God's mercy towards sinners. And John Owen tasted that mercy very deeply. He, he wrote some of the most glorious theological works known to man, not great English. His English is poor. <laughs> it's difficult to read. Uh, I heard someone once say they, they think Owen thought in Latin and then wrote in English, uh, which would make sense. But, but these glorious books he wrote, even today, Crossway's publishing this new, like 40-volume, beautiful hardcover edition of, of Owen's works. Uh, and, and so these, these books, 350 years after his death, are being promoted around the world. But on the day of his death, so August 24th, 1683, he was visited by a fellow minister, Mr. William Payne, 
And, and that minister was responsible for the publication of that book. And so he, William Payne visits Owen outside of London to share the good news that his book, Meditations on the Glory of Christ, is going to press. And so Owen, in his deathbed, says, I am glad to hear it. But oh, Brother Payne, the long-wished-for day has come at last in which I shall see that glory in another manner than I have ever done or was capable of doing in this world. One day we will all come face to face with the fullness of the glory of the risen Christ. On that day, the glory that we've lived for in this day, in this life, will be revealed. And so that day will either be the day of deepest terror and regret as we quake before him, even as we agree with his sentence of eternal damnation in hell forever. Or that day will be the beginning of an eternity of the greatest joy as we behold the one that we love and and we rejoice in his glorious presence forever. Lord willing, most of your life is in front of you. We don't know that for sure. People die at all ages all the time. But, But Lord willing, most of your life is in front of you. And you are going to live for glory in this life. There's glory that has already captured your heart. You're living for glory right now. But you will never know your your truest purpose. You'll never know the deepest joy if you don't find it in Jesus Christ. Conversely, you will never regret one minute, one moment of living for ultimate glory in this age. Because when you see Jesus face to face, then you will know glory like you've never known it before. And I want that day to be your day of greatest rejoicing as you stand before him. You were made to glorify God. So live for Christ. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.